Summer 2001. Al-Qaeda took precautions in its vetting and selection of recruits, and the 9-11 hijackers were all trained in using code words and other measures to maintain operational security. In spite of all this, Osama bin Laden couldn't help himself, and bragged about the upcoming attacks to pretty much anyone who would listen. Bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen writes, quote, Bin Laden couldn't resist dropping hints about what he believed would be his greatest triumph. During the summer of 2001, he told important visitors, quote, to expect a near-term attack against U.S. interests. Bin Laden also told trainees at an Al-Qaeda camp that 20 martyrs were about to embark on suicide operations. Quote, With regard to your brothers who went on a martyrdom operation, they went carrying their souls in their hands and seeking death. We ask God to blind the infidels to them, for in the coming days you will hear news that will delight you. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told his boss to be careful of what he said. Still, Bergen notes, quote, Rumors of the impending attacks on the United States were now starting to circulate widely in the jihadist community in Afghanistan. Among the people in Al-Qaeda training camps who heard the rumors were American John Walker Lind and Britain Faraz Al-Abbasi. Lind and Abbasi will be discussed in greater detail in a future episode. In spite of the risks to operational security, Bin Laden still wouldn't shut up. Bergen notes that in June of 2001, Bin Laden and Mohammed Atef met in Kandahar with Bakr Atyani, a correspondent for the Middle East Broadcasting Center. They ate a dinner of lamb stew in the guest's honor. Bin Laden told Atyani that he couldn't say anything on camera because of his promise to the Taliban to stop giving media statements. Mohammed Atef did tell him something more brazen and stunning off camera, though. Quote, in the next few weeks, we will carry out a big surprise, and we will strike or attack American and Israeli interests. He also noted, quote, the coffin business will increase in the United States. Atyani asked Bin Laden to confirm the comment. According to Bergen, Bin Laden said nothing and only smiled. Atyani reported the comments on his network on June 23, 2001. They got reprinted and reported by news organizations all over the world, including the Washington Post. Post correspondent Pamela Constable asked him, quote, Do you really believe that they are going to do it? Atyani responded, quote, Really, Pam, I believe they're going to do it really, because it sounds serious. I'm David DeSola. This is the seventh episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. During the final two years or so leading up to 9-11, Osama bin Laden's personal life, as well as his jihadist agenda, were keeping him busy. While his second wife and his oldest son Abdullah had both left Osama when the family was still living in Sudan, it is during this crucial period in Afghanistan that his family life begins to fall apart. By the late 90s, Osama bin Laden had been on the run in some form or another for the better part of that decade, first in Sudan, and then later on in Afghanistan. According to bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, the possibility of being kicked out of Afghanistan was always in bin Laden's mind since his arrival in 1996. He needed a contingency plan in case the Taliban forced him out. The solution he came up with was his father's ancestral homeland in Yemen. According to Bergen, quote, he believed that Yemen might prove to be a suitable refuge if he were ever forced out of Afghanistan. Marrying a Yemeni wife would give him a safe harbor with her tribe. The available evidence to that point shows that he had very credible reason to think he'd be safe in Yemen. You'll recall from the USS Cole investigation back in episode 4 that there were Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda friendly elements in the Yemeni security services and the government. 
Bin Laden had also used his influence to get Walid bin Atash released from Yemeni custody. Osama bin Laden had been looking for a Yemeni wife as far back as 1993, when his second wife Khadija divorced him while they were still living in Sudan. According to Bergen, the Yemeni cleric who played matchmaker in this scenario said that the prospective wife had to quote, be religious and young enough not to feel jealous of bin Laden's other wives. Her name was Amal al-Sadah. Her family agreed to the marriage because quote, they understood bin Laden to be a good Muslim and a man of means, but they didn't know much more about him. Bin Laden sent a bodyguard to bring her to Afghanistan, where they were married at some point in 2000. According to Peter Bergen, when Bin Laden introduced the idea of taking another wife to his existing wives, who were 41, 43, and 51 years old at the time, he described them all as a quote, mature 30-year-old who knew the Quran by heart. Osama was 43 at the time, Amal was just 16. She was younger than his five oldest children with Najwa, his first wife. The new addition to the family was not well received. Bergen writes, quote, Bin Laden's three older wives didn't disguise their anger at their husband for marrying someone who was more than two and a half decades younger than him. Besides the age difference, there was also an intellectual difference between Amal and some of his other wives. Peter Bergen describes Amal as, quote, a barely educated teenager. In contrast, his third wife, Korea, had been a child psychologist who gave up her career to marry him. His fourth wife, Siham, had a PhD in Quranic grammar. His second wife, Khadija, who had divorced him in 1993 and taken their children back to Saudi Arabia, had been a teacher at a girls' school in Jeddah and was nine years older than him. Amal would give birth to a daughter named Safia a few days after the 9-11 attacks. According to Peter Bergen, Bin Laden named her after the aunt of the Prophet Muhammad, who had killed a Jew, in the hopes that his daughter would do the same when she grew up. During the next nine years that Osama bin Laden was the world's most wanted fugitive, she gave birth to four more children in Pakistan. There was a time that Omar, Osama's fourth son with his first wife, was being groomed by his father as a potential successor as leader of Al-Qaeda. In his memoir, Omar writes that he butted heads with his father about many issues, including his jihad. Simply put, Omar did not share his father's commitment or views about terrorism. At some point in late 1999, Omar writes that two things influenced his final decision to leave Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda. The first was the surprise visit of his grandparents, Osama bin Laden's mother and stepfather, to Afghanistan. After a normal family dinner, it is revealed that the purpose of the visit wasn't just nostalgia for their oldest son. His mother was an emissary with a message from King Fahd of Saudi Arabia. Give up jihad, come home and make amends with assurances that he would neither be imprisoned or turned over to the Americans. Osama declined the offer. His parents left Afghanistan two days later. His grandparents' visit increased Omar's desire to leave his father and Afghanistan behind. The stakes were raised when one of his friends, a man named Abu Hadi he describes as a Jordanian 15 years his senior, told him privately, quote, Omar, you need to leave Afghanistan. I have heard talk that there is something very big in the works. You need to leave, Omar. You are a young man. You have never harmed anyone. You need to leave. Seek out a normal life. Do not stay here any longer. It is entirely possible that the fighter was referring to the 9-11 plot. As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Osama bin Laden couldn't help but tease the upcoming attacks. However, those comments came much later, in the final months before 9-11. 
it's unclear if he would have been teasing 9-11 potentially as far back as two years before, even though he had already approved the operation at that point. At around the same time, Omar's mother, who was about 40 years old, was pregnant with her and Osama's 11th child in 25 years of marriage. Mathematically, that averages to a pregnancy and birth every 27 months for two and a half decades. This pregnancy provides Omar the perfect cover to leave. After several discussions, Omar convinces his father to let him take his mother and two of his siblings out of Afghanistan so she can give birth in Syria because of the lack of adequate medical facilities in Afghanistan. Towards the end of the year, Najwa gives birth to a baby girl, who Osama names Noor after his late half-sister. Because of the timing of when he left, Omar was able to provide a first-hand account of his father and Al-Qaeda's reaction to the embassy bombings, which was covered back in episode 4, but Omar was gone by the time of the USS coal bombing in October of 2000. He writes, quote, I felt a wave of nausea. Was my father celebrating as he had after the bombings in Africa? Of course, I had no way of knowing the full truth, no more than any other ordinary Saudi citizen. I was no longer on the inside looking out, but was on the outside looking in. In truth, I preferred my new viewpoint, although I never stopped worrying over my mother and siblings. In early 2000, Najwa returned to Afghanistan to be with her husband, bringing their newborn daughter and two other children in tow. Omar remained in Syria, where he spent several months waiting for the reinstatement of his Saudi citizenship. Upon receiving his Saudi passport, Omar returned to his home country. He went back to Jeddah, his childhood home, for the first time since 1992. He also went to the Holy Mosque in Mecca. He wrote in his memoir, quote, I thank God that I had not been tempted by my father's path, that I had been successful in resisting a life of violence even when I was young and malleable. January 10th, 2001 Osama bin Laden is in a celebratory mood, and for once it doesn't have to do with a terror plot. His son Muhammad was marrying Khadijah, the daughter of his close friend and top lieutenant Muhammad Atef. The ceremony took place in Kandahar. Osama bin Laden's mother Aliyah and his half-brother Hassan had flown in from Saudi Arabia for the occasion. More than 400 guests attended the wedding. There, bin Laden read aloud a poem about the attack on the USS Cole almost three months earlier. The reading was filmed by two Al-Qaeda cameramen. There was a reason for this reading. Back in November, Ahmad Zaidan, the Al Jazeera bureau chief in Pakistan, had received the summons to speak with bin Laden in Afghanistan. But there was a dilemma. Bin Laden had made an agreement with Taliban leader Mullah Omar that he would stop talking to the media. According to bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, one of Al-Qaeda's media advisors had suggested in a memo that bin Laden, quote, should exploit the wedding parties of Al-Qaeda members for political purposes by giving well-prepared speeches and reading poetry, which would be videotaped and distributed. Those speeches would be all about his mission and achievements, and not about the nuptials. Bin Laden approved the idea and invited Zaidan to come and cover his son's wedding. It would be his way of commenting on the USS coal bombing without violating the spirit of his agreement with Mullah Omar. This is an excerpt of the poem he read, as published in Peter Bergen's book, The Osama Bin Laden I Know. A destroyer, even the brave, fear its might. It inspires horror in the harbor and in the open sea. She sails into the waves, flanked by arrogance, haughtiness, and false power. To her doom she moves slowly. A dinghy awaits her, riding the waves. Video of the reading would later air on Al Jazeera on March 1st, 2001. 
At some point in early 2001, after Mohammed bin Laden's wedding, Hassan bin Laden's mother is back in Saudi Arabia. She tells her grandson Omar, quote, Your father is very angry with you for leaving Afghanistan. He commands you to return. Sometime later, Omar bin Laden makes the trip back to Kandahar. He sees Abu Hadi, the fighter who had warned him about the big attack. Hadi warns him, quote, Don't think of staying here. Go back to your new life. The big plan is still ongoing. It will happen. You need to be far, far away. It is my belief that many of us will die. Omar remained in Afghanistan for several weeks before leaving for the last time in April 2001. He kept begging his mother to leave Afghanistan and take the children with her. For the time being, she would stay with her husband. American and foreign intelligence agencies were spending some of their limited time and resources monitoring Al-Qaeda through a variety of open source and classified methods. It was part of their job description. A certain amount of communication was to be expected. But in the spring of 2001, the amount of Al-Qaeda-related chatter being picked up by American intelligence begins to noticeably escalate. The following chronology of events is from the 9-11 Commission report. May 2001. A walk-in tells the FBI that there was a plot to launch attacks in London, Boston, and New York. May 16, 2001. An anonymous source calls a U.S. embassy abroad, warning that Bin Laden supporters were planning an attack in the United States using explosives. Officials were unable to verify the tip. The CIA's counterterrorist center chief, Kofor Black, tells National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice that the current threat level during this time was a 7 on a scale of 1 to 10. By comparison, he ranked the threat level during the millennium as an 8. The number of threat reports, quote, surged in June and July. These threats focused on potential targets abroad. Saudi Arabia, Israel, Bahrain, Kuwait, Yemen, Rome, or the G8 summit in Genoa, Italy. June 12, 2001. A CIA report containing biographical background information on several terrorists mentioned that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was recruiting people to travel to the United States to, quote, meet with colleagues already there so they might conduct terrorist attacks on bin Laden's behalf. June 21, 2001. U.S. Central Command raises force protection levels for U.S. troops in six countries to Delta, the highest possible level. The U.S. 5th Fleet is moved out of its port in Bahrain just eight months after the USS coal bombing in nearby Yemen. A Marine Corps exercise in Jordan was halted. U.S. embassies in the Persian Gulf did an emergency security review, and the U.S. embassy in Yemen was closed. June 22, 2001. CIA headquarters notifies all station chiefs abroad about intelligence, quote, suggesting a possible Al-Qaeda suicide attack on a U.S. target over the next few days. CIA Director George Tenet requested that all U.S. ambassadors be briefed. June 25, 2001. White House Counterterrorism Coordinator Richard Clark warns National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice and her deputy Stephen Hadley that six separate intelligence reports show Al-Qaeda personnel warning of a, quote, pending attack. By late June, the CAA orders all its station chiefs to share information about Al-Qaeda with their host governments and to, quote, push for immediate disruptions of cells. Disruption operations involving 20 countries were launched against Al-Qaeda cells. Several operatives were detained, 
and possible operations in the Persian Gulf in Italy, as well as potentially against two or three American embassies, were disrupted. July 2, 2001, the FBI Counterterrorism Division sends a message to federal agencies, as well as state and local law enforcement agencies, with a summary of information about threats from Osama bin Laden. It noted the increased volume of threat reporting and potential threat to U.S. targets abroad. However, the message also notes, quote, the FBI has no information indicating a credible threat of terrorist attack in the United States. July 18, 2001, the State Department publishes a warning to the public about possible terrorist attacks in the Arabian Peninsula. CIA Director George Tenet would later describe this period to the 9-11 Commission, saying, quote, The system was blinking red. By late July, he told the Commission that it could not get any worse. Here's former CTC analyst Cynthia Storer's description of the increase in chatter. So I'd been on a rotation to another office um, for two years after the Africa bombings, and then I came back in October of 2000. I was working something related, but I just wasn't in CTC. And I came back and the place felt like a war zone. I mean, there was absolutely no letdown that I could see. Not in CTC anyway. And people oh. knew something else was up. And the, the chatter, right? You know, you see all the chatter stuff. and stuff. And even the ops folks came to me and said, hey, you know, because again, I'm an all source analyst. I've been out of the office for two years. But they're like, hey, can you help us? We're, trying, we're following a gazillion leads and we just need like help. Look at it. You know, so. Here's former FBI agent Ken Maxwell. The chatter was increasing uh, significantly, as well as, as I recall, you know, some of the movements from the, of bin Laden were somewhat suspect and that he was moving around a lot, uh, you know, from the intel reports received out of Afghanistan. So the assessment of the entire intelligence community, not just the U.S., but even overseas and you know, our allies, was that um, a, a significant attack was being planned by UBL and by the Al-Qaeda organization. The frustration was no one knew, we didn't have enough information to predict exactly when it was going to happen or where. Um, and so a week or so before, when I returned from Yemen, uh, a week or so before, myself and Barry Morn, who was the assistant director in charge of New York at the time, we went over... Uh, not once, but twice to brief uh, the, the police commissioner at the time, Bernie Carrick and his senior staff uh, as to what we, our assessment was uh, about an imminent attack. Uh, and I remember the commissioner asking me, could it occur in New York? And my response was, uh, heretofore, Al-Qaeda has only struck U.S. interests overseas, but that's not not to say it couldn't occur anywhere, including New York. We just didn't know. And that was the frustrating part. So, yeah, uh, everybody was on uh, high alert. August 2001, Najla bin Laden approaches her husband and asks for permission to leave for Syria. In her memoir, she describes this reaction to her request. Quote, he nodded his expression a bit sad. He said, yes, Najwa, yes, you can leave. She asks for permission to take their children with her, but he only gives permission for three, their two youngest daughters and son, Abdul Rahman, their second oldest child who, according to journalist Lawrence Wright, was born with hydrocephalus, which caused him to suffer permanent mental damage. 
The 9-11 plot was well underway by this point, although it's not clear if Osama bin Laden knew the date of the attacks at the time of Najwa's request. Remember, Muhammad Atta calls Ramzi bin al-Sheib on August 29th to cryptically tell him the date of the attacks. It was subsequently bin al-Sheib's responsibility to inform al-Qaeda leadership and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed during the next 13 days. Regardless, in his heart of hearts, Osama bin Laden probably knew that a life on the run from the American military in the middle of a war zone was no place for his wife, disabled son, and two youngest children. Najwa saw her husband several times before leaving. During one of their conversations, he tells her, quote, I will never divorce you, Najwa. Even if you hear I have divorced you, it is not true. According to her memoir, Najwa bin Laden left Afghanistan with her three children between September 7th and 9th, 2001. January 20th, 2001. So help me God. Congratulations. George Herbert Walker Bush is sworn in as the 43rd President of the United States. As a candidate, he had run against Bill Clinton's character flaws and personal failings, as well as the many scandals of his presidency. It was a message that connected with large parts of the country that still had a collective hangover from impeachment two years earlier. Bush had also run against nation-building and foreign military entanglements that had defined his predecessor's presidency. Within eight months, reality would force him to change that position. His administration would be filled with appointees who had served under previous Republican presidents, particularly on the foreign policy and national security side where many had previously served during his father's presidency. Secretary of State Colin Powell, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security John Bolton, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations John Negroponte. The only holdover from the Clinton administration that would go on to serve in the Bush cabinet would be CIA Director George Tenet. But perhaps the most important voice in his cabinet would be that of his running mate, Dick Cheney. In a career that began during the Nixon administration, he had been a White House aide, White House Chief of Staff, Member of Congress, Secretary of Defense, and CEO of Halliburton. By the time Cheney reaches the Vice Presidency at the age of 59, he is one of the most experienced men to ever hold the office. He knew how to shape policy and how to wield the levers of government to achieve his goals. According to Cheney biographer Barton Gelman, quote, Dick Cheney simply knew the back channels of government better than anybody else. You don't need to go to the cabinet officer if you can find the right deputy assistant secretary. Many Cheney allies and loyalists from throughout his career in public service landed jobs in key positions in the new administration. His former mentor in the Nixon White House, Donald Rumsfeld, as Secretary of Defense, Stephen Hadley as Deputy National Security Advisor, David Addington as his Chief Counsel, Louis Scooter Libby as his Chief of Staff. New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker covered the Bush presidency and is the author of the book Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. Given his career trajectory uh, through the executive, uh, through the legislative branch, and then as a cabinet member, and then as, well, as a chief of staff, as a, you know, as a secretary of defense, you know, ultimately, Dick Cheney, by the time he becomes vice president, is probably one of the most experienced men ever to hold the office. Would that be a fair assessment? He definitely had a lot of experience, no question about it. Very, very seasoned individual, having been White House Chief of Staff, um, uh, senior member of Congress and, and, and uh, Secretary of Defense during the Gulf War, no question about it. 
So how does this lifetime of experience in various uh, parts of the government, how does this affect his, how he operates as vice president and how business was done in the Bush administration? Well, I mean, he was, um, you know, first of all, he was able to help build the administration in a way that few vice presidents are. Uh, Bush handed him a great deal of latitude in appointments, in, uh, you know, in stocking the administration with people. So throughout the administration, you would find people he had worked with before uh, that he trusted, that he thought were responsible. Um but at the same time, of course, having been defense secretary during the first Gulf War, he was more focused on Iraq, I think, than Al Qaeda, because that was his experience. His experience had been, uh, you know, the ex- the operation to expel Iraq from Kuwait, and the the you know continuing danger that Saddam Hussein uh, seemed to pose in the region as they came into power. So you know, he he had a very dark view of the world, one that might be justified given what happens later, but it was focused um, on a different source than uh, the one that would ultimately come to, 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 to fruition in their first year. January 25th, 2001, five days into the Bush presidency, White House counterterrorism coordinator Richard Clark, another rare holdover from the Clinton administration, writes a three-page memo to National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. The second sentence reads, quote, We urgently need such a principles-level review on the Al-Qaeda network. Attached to the memo is a copy of the Al-Qaeda strategy developed in December of 2000 during the final months of the Clinton administration. The 13-page document, titled, quote, Strategy for Eliminating the Threat from the Jihadist Networks of Al-Qaeda, Status and Prospects, has been declassified and can be read online. The whole thing is worth reading, but for now, focus on the second paragraph of the summary, which reads, quote, The United States' goal is to reduce the Al-Qaeda network to a point where it no longer poses a serious threat to our security or that of any other governments. That goal can be achieved over a three- to five-year period if adequate resources and policy attention are devoted to it. Also attached is a September 1998 document titled Paul Mill Plan for Al-Qaeda, abbreviated versions of the words political military. In his memoir, Richard Clark noted that his team had first developed the Paul Mill Plan for Haiti in 1994 as part of Operation Restore Democracy. Other plans were subsequently developed for Bosnia, Kosovo, Iran, and Iraq. Clark described the plans as, quote, a thick, loose-leaf notebook with tabs for every conceivable issue. It was full of advanced planning, anticipation of possible contingencies, specification of goals and objectives, identification of means of achieving the goals, estimation of resources required, timelines, and assignment of responsibilities. Clark was asked to come up with a similar document for dealing with Al-Qaeda in the aftermath of the Africa embassy bombings in 1998. When it came time to naming the plan, he looked to ancient Roman history to express the appropriate sentiment. In his memoir, Clark wrote, quote, To express the intent of the Paul Mill plan for Al-Qaeda, I borrowed a phrase from Cato the Elder, Roman senator and famous orator who, in 201 BCE, had encouraged war by ending every speech with the line, Carthage must be destroyed, or, as Cato would have said it, Carthago delenda est. When the Paul Mill plan was handed out, it was labeled Top Secret Delenda. 
The Undersecretaries of State and Defense, Tom Pickering and Walt Slocum, looked up from their copies knowingly. You're right, Pickering said. Al-Qaeda must be destroyed. The document, which remains classified, was described by the 9-11 Commission as such, quote, The paper called for diplomacy to deny bin Laden's sanctuary, covert action to disrupt terrorist activities, but above all to capture bin Laden and his deputies and bring them to trial, efforts to dry up bin Laden's money supply, and preparation for follow-on military action. The status of the document was and remained uncertain. It was never formally adopted by the principals, and participants in the small group now have little or no recollection of it. It did, however, guide Clark's efforts. The military component of Clark's plan was its most fully articulated element. He envisioned an ongoing campaign of strikes against bin Laden's bases in Afghanistan or elsewhere, whenever target information was ripe. Acknowledging the individual targets might not have much value, he cautioned Berger not to expect ever again to have an assembly of terrorist leaders in his sights. But he argued that rolling attacks might persuade the Taliban to hand over bin Laden, and in any case would show the action in August was not a one-off event. It would show that the United States was committed to a relentless effort to take down bin Laden's network. This document, known informally as the Delenda Plan, is what Clark attached to his January 25th memo to Condoleezza Rice. The memo was declassified on April 7, 2004, one day before Rice's public testimony before the 9-11 Commission. The National Security Archive at George Washington University points out that in response to accusations she ignored the Al-Qaeda threat before 9-11, Rice wrote in a March 22, 2004 Washington Post op-ed, quote, no Al-Qaeda plan was turned over to the new administration. As the spring of 2001 turned to summer, the players in the 9-11 plot began positioning themselves in the United States, like pieces on a chessboard. The men leader dubbed the Muscle Hijackers traveled from Pakistan to Dubai, they were the hijackers who were placed on each flight to do crowd control and support the pilot. Between April 23rd and June 29th, 2001, the muscle hijackers traveled to Orlando, Miami, Washington, D.C., or New York, where they were greeted on the ground by some combination of pilots Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and Hani Hanjour, or muscle hijacker Nawaf al-Hazmi. In total... All 19 hijackers came into the United States lawfully through eight different cities over the course of 19 months. The muscle hijackers probably didn't know much beyond that they were going to be part of a suicide mission in the United States. It is assumed that they were told little of the overall plan for reasons of operational security until the last minute. Upon arrival, they were settled into motels or short-term rented apartments in Fort Lauderdale, Florida or Patterson, New Jersey, to wait as preparations for the plot continued. They lived openly in their communities, joining local gyms, taking English classes, and obtaining state identification cards. They did nothing that would have alerted local or federal law enforcement. In the words of FBI Director Robert Mueller, quote, they committed no crimes with the exception of minor traffic violations. They dressed and acted like Americans, shopping and eating at places like Walmart and Pizza Hut. They had no jobs, so their stay in the United States had to be financed by Al-Qaeda. The funds came from contacts in the United Arab Emirates through Western Union and other services. They opened checking accounts at local American banks 
and use debit cards for their financial transactions. Listen to this comment from former FBI agent Mark Rossini. Because at the end of the day, terrorism is a crime, okay? Now, if you think about it, the ultimate act of a terrorist is the actual terrorism act, the bombing, the shooting, the killing, the whatever it is, the mayhem. But in furtherance or in, in, in getting to that goal of that day to do that terrorism activity, that terrorist has to live, has to eat, has to make money, has to pay the rent. Rossini's observation raises the bigger question of how the 9-11 plot was financed. 19 men with no otherwise marketable skills have to live in the United States for weeks or months at a time. They need to pay for rent, food, gasoline, and utilities like everyone else. On top of that, the pilots were taking flying lessons at several flight schools across the country. They also had to buy plane tickets. The 9-11 Commission estimated that the plotters spent between $400,000 and $500,000 over a period of two years to pull off the attacks. Where did this money come from? We can pretty much rule out where it didn't come from. Biographers and investigations generally agree that two events hit Osama bin Laden's wallet hard. The first was being financially cut off from his fortune by the Saudi government in 1994. According to the 9-11 Commission, bin Laden received roughly $1 million a year from 1970 to 1994. That year, the Saudi government forced the bin Laden family to sell Osama's share of the family business. But the Saudi government placed the proceeds of the sale into a frozen account, meaning Osama never received a penny for his shares. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, The Saudi freeze had the effect of divesting bin Laden of what would otherwise have been a $300 million fortune. Because most of his money and investments were in Saudi Arabia, after that point, this meant all bin Laden had left of his personal wealth was whatever money he had in Sudanese and other non-Saudi financial institutions. The second event that took a toll on Osama bin Laden's finances was his expulsion from Sudan in 1996 under international pressure. This forced him to sell his land holdings and companies in the country at fire sale prices, or sometimes to give them up altogether with no financial compensation. This meant that he was broke, or at the very least, in poor financial shape. In the 9-11 Commission's words, quote, He left Sudan with practically nothing. Both events were covered back in episode 2. This is how the 9-11 Commission describes Bin Laden at the time of his return to Afghanistan. Quote, Bin Laden's finances were initially in dire straits. Al-Qaeda was living hand-to-mouth and did not have any funds to store. The bottom line, this means Bin Laden could not have financed the Al-Qaeda organization or the 9-11 plot out of his own pocket. Al-Qaeda's money came from a fundraising network developed over a period of years, mainly through donations. The 9-11 Commission concluded that Al-Qaeda relied on a core group of financial facilitators who raised money from donors and other fundraisers, mainly from Persian Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia. Some donors may have known where their money was going, others may have been in the dark. Al-Qaeda also capitalized on the Islamic religion's call for charitable donations referred to as Zakat. Quote, These financial facilitators also appear to rely heavily on certain imams at mosques who are willing to divert Zakat donations to Al-Qaeda's cause. The group also received money from corrupt charities, which often had lax oversight and few, if any, internal controls. 
In one case, Al-Qaeda controlled an entire charity known as the Al-Wafa organization. In doing so, Al-Qaeda had access to Al-Wafa's bank accounts. According to the 9-11 Commission's study of terrorist financing, quote, Before 9-11, Al-Qaeda's expenses include funding operations, maintaining its training and military apparatus, contributing to the Taliban and their high-level officials, and sporadically contributing to other terrorist organizations. The CIA estimates that prior to 9-11, it cost Al-Qaeda about $30 million per year to sustain these activities. As previously mentioned in Episode 2, Al-Qaeda had a finance committee. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, Credible evidence indicates that bin Laden played a significant role in planning each operation and was very attentive to financial matters. Other than bin Laden, the person with the most important role in Al-Qaeda financing was reportedly Sheikh Kari Saeed. According to the commission, Saeed was a trained accountant who worked for and fought with bin Laden in Afghanistan in the late 80s and again in the 90s at one of bin Laden's Sudan-based companies. The commission described him as, quote, notoriously tight-fisted with Al-Qaeda's money. Some Al-Qaeda operational leaders may have bypassed the finance committee and Saeed by going directly to bin Laden for funding. According to the 9-11 Commission, Al-Qaeda allegedly paid the Taliban as much as 10 to 20 million dollars a year. The Taliban would come to rely on this money. In return, the Taliban would resist pressure to expel bin Laden to turn him over to a third country. Bin Laden had presumably learned his lesson from Sudan in making sure that his Taliban hosts would not throw him out. The specific origin of the 9-11 plot's funding, meaning a specific nation or organization, could not be determined. Going back to the central question of the previous episode, how do 19 men, most of limited education, foreign language proficiency, resources, and technical skills, pull off the 9-11 plot? The answer is they had help in the form of facilitators. Ali Abdulaziz Ali and Mustafa Al-Hausawi in the United Arab Emirates, and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib who traveled as necessary between Europe, the Middle East, and Central Asia. The Muscle hijackers started their journey to the United States after undergoing training in Afghanistan. But first, they had to get new passports in their home countries. The reason for this was to hide record of their travel to the Afghanistan-Pakistan region from American consular officers, as they were waiting for their U.S. visa applications to go through. In terms of how the 9-11 terrorists got their money, the answer is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who either gave them cash personally or made arrangements to wire funds to their account. Once they had made it to Dubai while on their way to the United States, the hijackers were assisted by Aziz and Al-Hasawi, who gave them money, plane tickets, and hotel reservations, in addition to training for how to act and operate in Western societies. Over the course of two years, the 9-11 terrorists would receive financial and logistical support from a total of five people, KSM, Ramzi bin Al-Sheib, Mustafa Al-Hasawi, Malid bin Atash, and Ali Abdulaziz Ali. KSM and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib have already been covered in this series. Now the focus will turn to the other three. Mustafa Al-Hasawi is a Saudi described by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence as, quote, one of two key financial facilitators entrusted by 11th September mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to manage the funding for the hijackings. He worked in Al-Qaeda's media center in Afghanistan from 2000 through early 2001, when he relocated to the United Arab Emirates. He is alleged to have had ties with some of the hijackers and Ramzi bin al-Sheib. 
and bin al-Sheib acted as communications links between KSM in Pakistan and the hijackers in the United States. Hausawi also shared a UAE-based bank account with one of the hijackers. This account was used to finance hijacker activities in the month leading up to 9-11. Four hijackers returned money to Hausawi during the week before the attacks, presumably leftover funds that were meant to be returned to Al-Qaeda during the final days before the operation. Hausawi subsequently redeemed these funds in the United Arab Emirates. Walid bin Atash, also known by his alias Khalad, is a Yemeni who was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. His father knew Osama bin Laden, Abdullah Azam, and the Blind Sheikh. Several of his brothers went to Afghanistan to receive training and fight during the 90s. His older brother Muhammad was one of Osama bin Laden's trusted lieutenants. Former FBI agent Ali Sufan described Walid bin Atash and his family, quote, as close to being Al-Qaeda royalty as possible. Khalad joined Al-Qaeda at age 15 in 1994. He served as one of bin Laden's bodyguards and fought against the Northern Alliance. He lost his right leg during a battlefield accident in 1997. After his recovery, he worked as a bodyguard inside Al-Qaeda and did some administrative tasks. He had also earned Osama bin Laden's trust to the point that he would undertake personal missions on bin Laden's behalf, which sometimes took months. He would also act as a gatekeeper for those wanting to see bin Laden privately. He would later go on to advise bin Laden in what became known within Al-Qaeda as the boats operation, the USS Cole bombing. Ali Abdul Aziz Ali, also known by his alias Omar al-Baluhi, is a member of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi Yusuf's extended family. Like KSM, he is described as a Baluchi who was born and raised in Kuwait. He spent most of his teenage years in Iran before moving to the United Arab Emirates in 1998, where he worked as a computer programmer. Ramzi Yusuf was his mentor in the early 90s, and in 1997 he offered his services to KSM. According to a document from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Al-Baluki, quote, played an important role helping facilitate the operation on 11 September by transferring money to U.S.-based operatives and acting as a travel facilitator to hijackers transiting the UAE on their way from Pakistan to the United States. The 9-11 Commission found that KSM, Ramsi bin al-Sheib, and Mustafa al-Hasawi received as much as $10,000 each for their roles in the plot. It also noted that none of the Hamburg cell members received any funding from Al-Qaeda before late 1999. This means that prior to that, they in all likelihood supported themselves. None of the hijackers had computers, although they did use publicly accessible internet connections. They also used a minimum of 133 prepaid calling cards from payphones, cell phones, and landlines. June 2001, Ayman al-Zawahiri's Egyptian Islamic Jihad group is formally merged into Al-Qaeda. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, EIJ had been receiving most of its funding from Al-Qaeda for the previous three years. According to bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, there is no evidence that Ayman al-Zawahiri was ever involved in the planning for the 9-11 plot, which was in the final stages at the time of the merger. There were an estimated 7 to 10 members in EIJ at that point, depending on which source is cited. Of those, 
Only five formally joined Al-Qaeda as part of the merger. Peter Bergen writes, quote, This small group was regularly creating problems for others in Al-Qaeda, and their wives were always complaining they wanted to go back to Cairo. In comparison, during the same period, Al-Qaeda produced an internal document listing its members. The document listed 170 names and ran nine pages. Ayman al-Zawahiri is conspicuously absent from this list. It's worth noting that even before this merger, several bin Laden's top lieutenants in the organization were Egyptian. Mohammed Atif, Saif al-Adil, and Abu Ubaidah al-Banshiri. Now, Ayman al-Zawahiri would become his top deputy. Several experts weighed in on the significance of the merger. The summer of 2001, um, Al-Qaeda and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad uh, make it official. They tie the knot. Why was that so significant? You know, that's a really good question. I think Jihad needed Al-Qaeda more than the other way around. What makes you say that? Because Zawahiri was in big trouble. <laughs> he was in big trouble at that point. Big trouble um, how? Like leadership-wise? Leadership-wise, you know, because he'd been arrested and then released, right? And and his people were like, you dumb shit. <laughs> you got yourself arrested, you know? And um, yeah, it was a mess. And um, they were losing money and the Gamat guys were starting to turn in jail and all this stuff was going on. And um, I think they really needed Al-Qaeda's resources. But then Al-Qaeda could use them as an operational arm, so... Summer of 2001, uh, Al-Qaeda and Egyptian Islamic Jihad uh, tie the knot. They make it official. Why is this so significant? Well, it's it's a um, step that uh, Zawahiri, uh, in particular, the then head of the dominant faction of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, made to accept bin Laden's entire go-after-the-far-enemy strategy. Until then... Uh, he and his colleagues from Egypt had been going after the near enemy, the Mubarak regime. Uh, so this this represented a triumph of sorts of uh, bin Laden's whole way of uh, going about this business and focusing on the United States as the immediate foe. And this also gives uh, the Egyptians a significant seat at the table in terms of the Al-Qaeda leadership, right? It does. It's always been uh, you know, multinational. Um, and I would say, you know, before that particular merger, if you will, uh, the Egyptians had not been represented nearly as much as they had after Zawahiri came into uh, Bin Laden's orbit. Uh, what is this Bin Laden and Zawahiri relationship like? Well, I mean, there's much more I think we wish we knew about that. Um, they are not... Um, they're not the same person. And ever since bin Laden was taken out of the picture in Abbottabad, um, there's been a lot of effort to analyze just what Zawahiri's standing is as his successor, and not just as his deputy. Uh, and I think the, uh, uh, the common knowledge on that is uh, he does not have, he, Zawahiri, the kind of uh, charisma uh, that bin Laden was able to employ to reach the status uh, he did. Uh, and to the extent that he doesn't have that, I think that works to our advantage on the counterterrorist side. Summer 2001, why is the Al-Qaeda Egyptian Islamic Jihad merger so significant? Uh, it's significant because the Egyptians are some of the most experienced people within the jihadi movement having 
been involved in campaigns against the Egyptian government going all the way back to the 1960s, as well as many key uh, military trainers um, in Afghanistan being Egyptian. I mean, the, the two groups have been cooperating with each other before. It was more just uh, an official recognition of what had already been sort of going on in the previous few years uh, and sort of cementing things. July 10th, 2001, Phoenix-based FBI agent Kenneth Williams had learned a year earlier that Al-Qaeda sympathizers were studying civil aviation and aeronautical engineering at several Arizona schools. He eventually wrote a memo to headquarters in New York raising concerns about Middle Eastern men attending U.S. flight schools. This document would later become colloquially known as the Phoenix Memo, a reference to its origin. The memo itself is not exclusively about Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, though bin Laden himself is specifically mentioned several times. The synopsis of the memo read, quote, Osama bin Laden and al-Mujirun supporters attending civil aviation universities slash colleges in Arizona. Williams warned that bin Laden was sending a number of students to the United States as part of a, quote, coordinated effort to put them, quote, in a position in the future to conduct terror activity against civil aviation targets. Williams based his theory on the, quote, inordinate number of individuals of investigative interest attending flight schools in Arizona. The memo was sent to a dozen or so FBI officials, including two members of international terrorism squads in the New York office, but none of them sent it to the Bureau's acting director at the time. According to Fortune journalist Richard Behar, New FBI Director Robert Mueller did not see the document until after 9-11. The Bureau did not share this memo with the CIA, which did not learn of its existence until early 2002. Williams later told investigators that the memo did not warn of suicide pilots. He was thinking more of a Pan Am 103 scenario in which explosives were placed on a plane and then detonated. <laughs> August 4, 2001. 50 muscle hijackers came into the country without a hitch earlier in the summer. But there was a problem with number 16. A Saudi named Mohammed Al-Qahtani who arrived at Orlando International Airport on a Virgin Atlantic flight from London. He was referred to secondary inspection at customs because the initial inspector could not communicate with him and his immigration papers were not properly filled out. Al-Qahtani found himself before Jose Melendez Perez, an inspector for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, who had prior experience dealing with Saudi passengers. Melendez Perez tried questioning Al-Qahtani, who was unable to speak English. Melendez Perez also discovered the passenger didn't have a return ticket or a hotel reservation. Through an interpreter, Melendez Perez asked Al-Qahtani why he didn't have a return ticket. In Melendez Perez's own words, quote, the subject became visibly upset and in an arrogant and threatening manner, which included pointing his finger at my face, stated that he did not know where he was going when he departed the United States. His initial suspicion was that Al-Qahtani was a hitman. The more questions he asked, the more holes he was able to poke into Al-Qahtani's story. He said he was waiting for a friend who was due to arrive in three or four days and was going to be vacationing in the United States for six days. In Melendez Perez's words, quote, At this point, I realized that his story did not seem plausible. 
Why would he be vacationing for only six days and spend half his time waiting for his friend? It became apparent that the subject was being less than truthful concerning his true intentions. He discovered that Al-Khatani had $2,800 in cash in his physical possession, but no credit cards. This amount would barely be enough to buy a return ticket to Dubai, let alone cover expenses for a six-day vacation in the United States. Al-Khatani told him someone was picking him up at the airport, but then backpedaled and changed his story when asked who. After almost two hours of questioning and consulting with his superior, Melendez Perez put Al-Khatani on a plane back to London with a connecting flight to Dubai. Before boarding the aircraft, Al-Khatani said, quote, I'll be back. It wasn't until almost a year later that the disturbing question of who was picking up Al-Khatani at the airport that day was finally answered. Investigators tracking Mohamed Atta's credit cards were able to place him at Orlando International Airport on that day. He made two phone calls to the Middle East from an airport payphone, presumably an attempt to check on Al-Khatani. This would explain why Al-Khatani quickly backpedaled from his explanation that someone was picking him up at the airport. Investigators were not able to make the connection between Atta and Al-Khatani until 2002. Al-Khatani is now widely believed to have been the 20th hijacker in the 9-11 plot if he had been able to clear customs that day. If that was the case, he probably would have been the 5th hijacker on United 93. Jose Melendez Perez is one of the few heroes in this story where the system worked as it was supposed to, within a larger narrative of a system-wide failure to prevent the 9-11 attacks. August 6, 2001. Crawford, Texas is a small town with a population of 705 in the 2000 census. It's located about 120 miles southwest of Dallas. Within a year, one of its residents happens to be the recently elected President of the United States, George W. Bush, whose main residence, when not at the White House, is a 1,600-acre ranch. During its presidency, it became known as the Western White House. For most of the month of August, Washington, D.C. is a ghost town because Congress is out of session and the President usually takes his annual vacation. President Bush had been in office for about seven months when he went to Crawford for his working summer vacation in the first year of his presidency. He would come to the ranch to unwind by riding bikes or clearing brush, but at the same time, the business of running the country was never far from his mind. During his eight years in office, he received world leaders there as personal guests. Another responsibility that follows the president wherever he goes is the daily intelligence briefing. Before 9-11, that responsibility fell to the Central Intelligence Agency. One of the people that went to Texas with the president for the month of August was Michael Morell, his intelligence briefer. In his memoir, he noted that earlier in the summer, he had met with every analytic office at the agency to discuss what they might want to write during what he called, quote, the summer doldrums, the weeks of late July and August when it was hard to get the number of good PDB pieces we needed because so many people were on vacation. When I met with the terrorism analysts, I asked them to write the now famous August 6th PDB. Here's then-National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice recalling the title of that intelligence report while testifying before the 9-11 Commission. Isn't it a fact, Dr. Rice, that the August 6th PDB warned against possible attacks in this country? And I ask you whether you recall the title of that PDB. 
I believe the title was Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States. The PDB, short for President's Daily Brief, is defined by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence as, quote, a daily summary of high-level, all-source information and analysis on national security issues produced for the President and key cabinet members and advisors. The PDB has existed in some form or another since 1946, when Harry Truman was the first president to receive an intelligence briefing in the modern-day sense. It is one of the most closely guarded documents in Washington, and only a handful of people in the entire government have access to it. In his memoir, Michael Morell wrote, quote, I asked for this piece because earlier in the year, whenever CIA Director George Tenet and I would brief the president on the Al-Qaeda threat, the president would directly ask us, is there any indication that this threat is aimed here at the United States? Given the president's frequent question, I wanted to have the analysts dig deeper into the subject. This is how President Bush recalled the document during his interview with the 9-11 Commission. Quote, The president told us the August 6th report was historical in nature. President Bush said the article told them that Al-Qaeda was dangerous, which he said he had known since he had become president. The president said bin Laden had long been talking about his desire to attack America. He recalled some operational data on the FBI and remembered thinking it was heartening that 70 investigations were underway. He did not recall discussing the August 6th report with the Attorney General or whether National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice had done so. He said that if his advisors had told him there was a cell in the United States, they would have moved to take care of it. That never happened. According to the 9-11 Commission, it was the 36th PDB item briefed to the President that year about bin Laden or Al-Qaeda, and the first to mention the possibility of an attack on the United States. The document itself is less than a page and a half in length, written in clear, direct prose that an average person could read and understand in the matter of a few minutes. Substantively, it is a recap of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda's history of threats and attacks against the United States during the previous four years. The final two paragraphs in the document offer tantalizing, if incomplete and partially inaccurate, assessments which only make sense given the benefit of hindsight after the attacks and years of investigations. The August 6th PDB has been declassified and published with minimal redactions, and can be read online. These are the final two paragraphs of the document. Nevertheless, FBI information since that time indicates patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks, including recent surveillance of federal buildings in New York. The FBI is conducting approximately 70 full-field investigations throughout the U.S. that it considers bin Laden-related. CIA and FBI are investigating a call to our embassy in the UAE in May, saying that a group of bin Laden supporters was in the U.S. planning attacks with explosives. To put the final paragraph of the PDB into context, remember, two of the Al-Qaeda facilitators who handled the financial logistics of the 9-11 plot were based in the United Arab Emirates, and wired money from there to the hijackers in the United States. Two of the hijackers, Marwan al-Shehi and Fayez Bani Hamid, were Emiratis. According to Morell, the August 6th intelligence briefing took place in the living room at the president's ranch. Only one other person was present, a senior staffer from the National Security Council, who was there to fill in for Condoleezza Rice and her deputy Stephen Hadley. In Michael Morell's words, quote, I teed up the piece by explaining why we had written it. The president then read it closely. I do not recall any further discussion of the piece. We've moved on to the next item. 
I did not treat it as a hair on fire or action forcing peace, and the president did not read it that way either. Three years later, it would become the first PDB in history to be declassified and made public. Barbara Sood was the analyst who wrote it. How many PDBs did you write in the course of your career, and how many had you written by the time you get to August 6th? Oh, I don't know. I couldn't possibly know how many. Dozens, you know, and yes, 50. Uh, now, there were things that were lower level for senior executives. They had used to have senior executive intelligence brief, but there were other ones that, you know, they had called it in the previous year. So I, you know, I'd written them on in Africa and on um, other countries I'd worked on. And then, of course, in this context, we have, a, you know, we had several analysts, not a lot of analysts, and they wrote 40 of these things, unless a couple of them were by someone from one of the other countries, but I don't think so. Most of them were written by our office that year. And uh, the, the system was blinking red. That was us. So not just me, but, you know, just a few other people were writing all those things. And uh, the Bush administration was also building up for Iraq. So they were taking. I don't think they didn't do anything about Iraq until after 9 11, though. Right, but it doesn't mean they didn't ask about it. Oh, true. Uh, for ideological for ideological reasons, I'm assuming, right? Not for any any sort of. Security. Well, you know, it wasn't Biden related yeah. to Iraq, et cetera. Right. Right. But that wasn't as often as. Um, the regular threats we would I told you you know we had to warn about threats uh, that had at least some legitimacy anytime they came up so we had a lot of stuff like that. yeah we also saw this build up so but back to the original question any idea like you could get a, put an estimate on how many PDBs you wrote like you know just or a range you know one five a dozen before 9 11 yeah before 9-11? Oh, easily a dozen on uh, that year, maybe. Uh, so people understand that you were experienced at this thing, that this wasn't your first time writing one. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to right, establish. Right, right, right. That's and what I'm trying to establish. The right. We wrote constantly the previous year, too. We we wrote mm-hmm. constantly the year before that. We, ever since uh, the Africa bombings, that's when I started working on it. Um, ever since then, it was something very, very frequently, a major piece very frequently. Okay. And that year, there were 40 PDBs, and in one week, I wrote two PDBs and two of these lower-level things. Okay. Um, um, you know, that's a lot. So I can say maybe a 10 or a dozen at least. Okay. So were and you're, the ones you yourself wrote, they were all about? Terrorism or the other subjects as well? No, no. Well, only about bin Laden. Only about bin Laden. Only about uh, Al-Qaeda. Let's look at the actual text itself. It's very direct. It's very self-spoken. You don't need a, you know, need a PhD in English literature or international relations to understand it. Pretty quick and to the point, you know, a bunch of, you know, short paragraphs and bullet points. It's not. It's not. Diff- it's not a difficult document to read or understand compared to some of the more legalistic documents and and you know memos and legal opinions and things that that policymakers will have to go through. You know what I mean? We have that's a certain style we kind of had to follow, uh, more or less. Okay. 
is that was 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 that the is that the normal format the normal style you're taught to, to write in or is that something that's like tailored to spe- the, spe- the 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 personal taste of the specific president yeah, it was a little different because if this was one of those uh, evergreens okay then it's a little different because it's not based on a specific threat at the you know at the top of it otherwise you might have to be start yeah. with the threat but it's an analytic piece. And uh, so we were asked to tell us about Al-Qaeda and the United States. So that was kind of it, like what? Okay, well, we had all been, my whole unit branch had been talking about, you know, we have to have some way of talking about the United States, but because we're CIA, we don't cover the United States, you know? We right. So, when this tasking came through, I said, I'm going to have to talk to the FBI because they do the United States, not us. So um, it might have been illegal even not to consult mm-hmm. the FBI. So okay. that's the way it starts out. So when we're, and we were also thinking, you know, it's been so difficult for us to push the idea that an attack could take place in the United States. So we should say, you know, we welcome the opportunity to actually say that. So there it is. There's our opening. But we don't have a specific threat at that moment. And everything else we've been writing has been about specific threats, like in the Middle East or whatever. Yeah. So so how do we say it? So we're going to say it's like when you're dealing with any leader. Well, what does he say? So he says he wants to attack the United States like Ramsey Yusuf, right? And then, uh, well, did he, if he hasn't, uh, we had the uh, Millennium Plot. And, uh, so that might've been an attempt by him. But if that failed, would he give up? No, he wouldn't give up. He didn't give up on Kenya. He conducted the attacks. All right, can he do it? So it's kind of intent, capability, and then is anything going on? So that's, so then the rest of it's, yes, capability. He has intent, he has capability, he has people here, and there's weird things going on right now. And that was coordinated with the FBI. Anyway, so that's the structure. Your, your your thought process. I mean, are you, how long does it take you to actually write this thing? I mean, I'm assuming you have a bunch of documents and source material there that you're consulting and you're doing back and forth. I mean, I don't know. How long did it take you to put this together? Um, a couple of days, maybe at the most. You're not, you don't have a lot of time. Uh, so you got like, for a piece like that that didn't have a pressing, you know, you have some, a lot of things you have to write immediately. You know, it's like being a reporter. But this wasn't a specific thing. So we had maybe a couple of days and then it's edited. And then it goes up to the, uh, I had to talk to the FBI too. And I had to run it by them again. And then it goes up to the PDD staff and um, Morell could take a look. And Morell said it needs a little more work. Oh, I don't think they changed that much. So we had an extra day. We had to, well, add something or make some tweaks to it. And everything also, when you write something like that, you also have to have a background note. Like what, what, you know, who was the blind shake? 
things like that. You know, that's to be this little thing that goes up with it. So, um, you know, it kind of took most of a week to get it through the system. So it wasn't something like, you know, you wrote over a lunch break or something. I mean, this took time. Well, we might have started with probably an afternoon. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you kind of have to maybe a little longer because of the FBI thing and having to be coordinated. A lot, uh, most of the stuff you had to write the same day, but this one might have had more time. You know, looking at it again as a, as a you know, impartial. But we, did, we already had it. Yeah, looking at it as a reader. I mean, your headline is pretty alarming and ultimately accurate, although the actual text is very different. It's, it's largely historical with the exception of the last two paragraphs, right, which is where the FBI material comes in. Well, this is where I draw the line at saying it was historical because you have to, if you were talking about what a leader's intentions are, those, aren't histor- those are historical only to a degree. There still is intention. So mm-hmm. you could say like Putin. You say this is his track record. So yes, he could do this. Record. What's what's coming next? Right. And the Rassam stuff was from that summer because Rassam was on, you know, was cooperating with the US government and we were getting debriefings from him in July. So the Rassam stuff was very recent. And uh, the stuff with the FBI was saying was very recent. One thing I learned in my experience as a journalist, and I'm assuming it's the same for you in intelligence, is you know one a big part of my work is, for example, when I'm investigating or looking at a story or I get a tip, you know, for example, you know, my experience is there's usually at least some element of truth to whatever bit of information I'm getting, um, and then my job is to determine you know how far how, how 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 true it is whether it's entirely or partially true or, or not at all and so obviously we're doing this for the benefit of hindsight you know 20 years later you know and what we now know through numerous investigations and books and memoirs and so forth but you look at the you know the last the last two paragraphs right now with the fbi we know there we know that they were looking at new york as a target no no i don't know if they were i don't think they they scouted federal buildings um, but, you know, preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks, there you go. You're right on the money. And that's F- the same thing. That's the question. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't think it was the same thing. But that the weird thing was um, after 9-11 and especially after it gets all subsumed with the Iraq WMD fiasco that the... Um, um, national intelligence estimate on Rock WMD, which had analytic tradecraft problems. We didn't have analytic tradecraft problems, but you get into this situation now where the thing about hijackings would not be in a current paper that's following proper tradecraft these days, because that was a feeling. It was something. FBI said we're seeing hijackings. Um, the woman I was talking to, the person I was talking to, turned to a colleague and said, aren't you seeing hijacking threats? And he said, yes. And I said, I'm talking to him on the phone. I said, um, you know, I'm getting that feeling too. It was a like, a, I don't know how to, like a sixth sense or something. Yeah. I mean, when you have, when you're privy to that, 
when you're drinking, you're exposed to that so much. And I guess you're, you're seeing the, you class, you have access to the classified. But now I think I had seen stuff that year. We had a hijacking threat earlier in the year that I had written up. And it mentions there the previous threat in 98. Mm-hmm. That was in the back of my mind. So yeah. it was all, and then there'd been a, a paper by FAA that maybe was a couple of years earlier, but I kept it. I kept a copy of it. So all of that stuff converged in the idea of hijackings. So that's how it got in there. And the FBI was having, you know, they gave me, I, uh, so when we got like feedback, initial feedback, they said you have to have some specifics in here from the FBI side. So I asked the person for specifics and they gave them the 70 full field investigation. So that's yeah. how that got in. 70 full field investigations. Okay. As a journalist, that's, that's an eye catcher. Um, calling embassy in UAE in May saying that a group of bin Laden supporters was in the U.S. planning attacks with explosives. Uh, well, we know for a fact that the, I forget who, which of the logistics people, the support people was there. Um, Ronzi Bin Al-Sheep was one of them. There were like two others, and I can't remember the names right now, but they were sending money and doing things to the hijackers from UAE. So, I mean, you know, there was an element of, there were, there was a support, Al Qaeda support network in UAE that summer, you know. So I'm wondering if some that you know somebody no, tipped know off. Not, but you know. So I needed something specific. Is anything going on? Mm-hmm. And I also had a, the company background note that talked about you know surveillance of buildings in more detail. Yeah. So they, but none of that, of course, was probably related to 9/11 directly, unless, as you pointed out, the. Yeah. So, um, but you know, we did, we had a sense. We knew something big was going to happen. We just didn't know what. It makes one a little resentful of the FBI as later asking, "How did you get that seventy full field investigations?" Well, I certainly wouldn't have, since I didn't know what a full field investigation was back then. I uh, I obviously got it from you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. 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 Nobody wants to own that one. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I think field investigations are about individual uh, people, but right. that's still substantial. Yeah. So looking back on, so looking back on it, how do you think the document holds up? It's, it's just a general warning. It's a strategic warning. And Hank Crumpton in his book gave credit as a strategic warning. I didn't, Hank Crumpton's book, I'm not too sure. A little bit macho for my taste, but um, he recognized it and he was just an operational person, so he wouldn't have been into the um, analytic mumbo jumbo, but he thought it was strategic warning. So we couldn't provide, it's very rare in terrorism to provide tactical warning. You can really only provide strategic, and I think that's what Paul Pillar talks about too, because you Uh, really get that specific. Later on, they do manage to disrupt some plots in the United States because the collection improved tremendously. On 9-11 proper, did you, when as, as the attacks were happening that morning, or did, does your mind go back to this PDB or any of the other ones you had written in the months before? Are you thinking like, oh my God, did I miss something? Oh my God, you know, did we get no, this? We, um, 
Well, it was thought we did sort of get it, but we knew it wasn't. I didn't have the specifics then, so the PDB couldn't be it, but we already knew. We knew immediately as soon as we figured out it was terrorism, which is when the second plane hit. We knew who did it. There was absolutely no question. August 15, 2001, the FBI's Minneapolis field office opens an intelligence investigation into a French national named Zacharias Massawi. After Ramzi Ben Alshib failed to get a U.S. visa for the 9-11 plot, he began assisting Massawi in the summer of 2000 as a possible pilot. Massawi was sent to Malaysia for flight training and later on to the United States for that same purpose. He had lived and been educated in the United Kingdom and had already been through the training camps in Afghanistan. In other words, he was already familiar with living in Western societies and had already received training from Al-Qaeda. After 9-11, Ahmed Ressam, the Algerian who was arrested crossing the Canadian border with a car full of explosives during the millennium, identified Moussaoui as someone who had been in the Afghan camps. According to a federal grand jury indictment, Moussaoui came to the United States on February 23, 2001, where he eventually enrolled in a flight school in Norman, Oklahoma. As a French national, he had one advantage the other 9-11 hijackers did not. He could enter the United States without a visa for a maximum of 90 days. In his case, this meant he could legally be in the country until May 22nd. Foreigners studying in the United States usually get a student visa, allowing them to stay in the country beyond what a normal tourist visa would allow. Musawi didn't complete the training and stopped taking lessons by late May. By that point, he had already stayed in the country longer than what his French passport would allow him to. According to the Department of Justice, Musawi enrolled in a flight simulator training program near Minneapolis, Minnesota on August 9th. He raised several red flags. He didn't have a pilot's license and only had limited experience on small planes. Musawi told an instructor he was attending flight school to go on a, quote, joyride and wanted to fly a simulated flight from London's Heathrow Airport to New York's JFK Airport. He also paid in cash for the lessons, in contrast to most students whose lessons were paid for by the airline that employed them. Six days later, a manager at the flight school contacted the local FBI field office to report they were training a student they considered to be suspicious. Within 30 minutes, the FBI was filing paperwork to open a, quote, full field intelligence investigation of Musawi. Within 24 hours, the FBI made the decision to arrest Musawi for staying in the country beyond the 90 days his French passport allowed. The reasoning was they wanted to stop him from getting any more flight training so that he couldn't use it after he was deported. Musawi was taken into custody by two INS agents. A deportation order was signed on August 17, 2001. The FBI reached out to their people and their foreign counterparts in London and Paris as part of the effort to gain evidence against Musawi to get a special search warrant under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. At this point, the 9-11 attacks were less than four weeks away. An FBI agent involved in the case later told the Department of Justice Inspector General that he was convinced, quote, 100% that Massawi was a bad actor, was probably a professional mujahideen, and this wasn't a joyride, that he was completely bent on use of this aircraft for destructive purposes. The FBI didn't get permission to search Massawi's possessions until 9-11, 
That morning, FBI agents were finishing up plans to deport him when the attacks changed everything. After searching his laptop, notebooks, and cell phone, they found a Northwest Airlines 747 cockpit operating manual, two 747 training videos, seven notebooks with handwritten notes about aviation, a Microsoft flight simulator, and more. They did not find any hard evidence directly tying him to 9-11, but the FBI noted, quote, Information was obtained in the search that, through further traces, was used by the government to indict Moussaoui for conspiring in the September 11 terrorist plot. Moussaoui would later be indicted by a federal grand jury in December of 2001 for his role in plotting the 9-11 attacks. The 9-11 Commission notes the potential missed opportunity presented to intelligence and law enforcement by the Moussaoui arrest. Quote, Moussaoui had been in contact with and received money from Ramzi bin al-Sheib. If Moussaoui had been connected to al-Qaeda, questions should instantly have arisen about a possible al-Qaeda plot that involved piloting airliners, a possibility that had never been seriously analyzed by the intelligence community. August 23, 2001. The FBI gets a bulletin from the CIA to be on the lookout for four terrorist suspects that they had just added to the watch list. Among them were Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi. According to the House-Senate joint inquiry, the cable went out to several agencies asking that these quote, Bin Laden-related individuals be watchlisted immediately and that they be denied entry into the United States. All four of them had been at the Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia in January of 2000. The reason cited for the request is, quote, due to their confirmed links to Egyptian Islamic Jihad operatives and suspicious activities while traveling in East Asia. Remember, the CIA had asked their Malaysian counterparts to track these two future 9-11 hijackers in Malaysia in January of 2000, and then lost their trail once they left for Thailand. Instead of putting them on a terrorist watch list immediately 18 months earlier, the agency withholds this crucial intelligence until 19 days before 9-11. A CIA Inspector General report published in 2014 concluded that at least 50 people at the agency knew about the two hijackers' arrival in the United States and did not share this crucial information. This was covered in Episode 6. By that point, it was already too late, because both Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi had already been in the country for months. When the FBI received Al-Midar's visa information from the State Department on August 29th, they discovered that he had entered the country on July 4th, and that he had written on his application that he would be staying at a Marriott Hotel in New York City. That information turned out to be false, but the Bureau spent a week during this critical period trying to track him down at Marriott Hotels all over the New York area only to announce they found nothing on September 5th. Also happening that same day, CIA Director George Tenet was briefed on the Zacharias Moussaoui case. During a briefing titled, quote, Islamic Extremists Learns to Fly. Because the FBI had arrested him and was already putting together a criminal case, Tenet did not discuss it with anyone at the White House or at the Bureau. At the time, nobody had connected Moussaoui to Al-Qaeda or the broader threats being reported by the intelligence community that entire summer. Late August 2001, Osama bin Laden tells Al-Qaeda leaders that the big operation against the United States would happen soon, but he did not mention the targets. About two weeks before the 9-11 attacks, he orders Al-Qaeda training camps to shut down, telling members and trainees that, quote, 
because of the imminent martyrdom operation, they should scatter to the mountains or into large cities like Kabul and Kandahar so that they would not be easy targets for American airstrikes. September 4, 2001, the Principals Committee holds its first meeting on the subject of Al-Qaeda, one week before 9-11. As mentioned in Episode 5, one of the topics during this meeting is the emerging drone technology. Different members took different positions on the subject. Here's what the 9-11 Commission says about it. Quote, At the end, Rice summarized the meeting's conclusions. The armed predator capability was needed but not ready. The predator would be available for the military to consider, along with its other options. The CIA should consider flying reconnaissance-only missions. The principals, including the previously reluctant tenant, thought that such reconnaissance flights were a good idea, combined with other efforts to get actionable intelligence. Tenet deferred an answer on the additional reconnaissance flights, conferred with his staff after the meeting, and then directed the CIA to press ahead with them. This is how Richard Clark recounts the meeting in his memoir. Quote, The principal's meeting, when it finally took place, was largely a non-event. Tenet and I spoke passionately about the urgency and seriousness of the Al-Qaeda threat. No one disagreed. Later on, he adds this about the drones debate. Quote, The only heated disagreement came over whether to fly the armed predator over Afghanistan to attack Al-Qaeda. Neither CIA nor the Defense Department would agree to run that program. Rice ended the discussion without a solution. She asked that I finalize the broad policy document, a national security presidential directive, on Al-Qaeda and send it to her for presidential signature. September 7, 2001. FBI agent Ken Maxwell meets with a former colleague, John O'Neill, who had recently started his new job as Director of Security at the World Trade Center. O'Neill offers Maxwell a job working for him. I met with John on the Friday evening before 9-11. Uh, he had approached me to um, become his Deputy Director of Security at the Trade Center, and he knew I was looking to retire. I had two my kids were in college at the same time in very expensive universities, and I didn't want to leave the bureau. It was, it was my, uh, my vocation, my love. But, you know, I had some financial uh, uh, obligations that were creeping up on me. So, uh, you know, I was actively looking uh, at a second career opportunity. So anyway, John pitched me, and um, we met on that Friday. I'd spoken with my wife, who's also a retired FBI agent, and, and uh you know, he made a generous offer and agreed to take the job. So we met, had a couple of drinks. I walked him to his car that evening. We shook hands and he said, Kenny, I'll call you next week to come over and sign the papers. And I told him that, yeah, I'll start the process on my end. And in terms of notifying the bureau that I was going to retire. In fact, Monday morning, I had my secretary start to pull the appropriate forms that you have to you know, put in for retirement. And I uh, started filling them out that evening when I got home Monday night and I put them in my briefcase, put them in the trunk of uh, my bureau car. And of course, as a first responder on that morning, I parked my car right there, uh, just, uh, just east of the North Tower on VC Street there. And my car was found uh, months later in the Staten Island landfill. Didn't look anything like a car. And of course, the, those papers uh, went up in flames. Uh, we, John and I had agreed that my starting date would be on or about uh, October 1st. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's the last uh, 
conversation and a meeting that I had with John. September 9th, 2001. Besides being the main leader of the anti-Taliban forces in the northern part of the country, Ahmed Shah Massoud was also a hero of the Soviet war. He had earned the moniker the Lion of Panjshir for the battles he led against Soviet troops in the Panjshir Valley. Former CIA officer Milt Bearden noted that he gave Massoud's group money and stinger missiles at the time, but he never met him. He described Massoud as a political pragmatist, given the reality and geography of his predicament. You know, Massoud is quite a, a legend in his own right, but he had his own goals. And I, I, I was uh, very well aware of what he was up to in the, the you know, 87, 88. Uh, he was already uh, working his political maneuvering uh, with the uh, Supreme Council of the North, and he was um, not only did he deal with me, but uh, he had a very, very good context with the GRU. So, so would, would it be fair to say he was playing both sides to, to a degree? But, no, he was smart. Uh, yeah, he would have to play both sides uh, because he knew one thing for sure. The Americans were going to leave, uh, but the Soviets were right there. Here's former CIA analyst Paul Piller. Well, Massoud was you know, the, the preeminent Tajik uh, warrior and leader um, going back to the, the, the time of the war against uh, the Soviets and then continued to be after that um, uh, in, in later times the principal opposition to the Taliban in what became known as the Northern Alliance. Uh, so in both ethnic terms and in terms of uh, his significance on the battlefield, uh, he was uh, uh, clearly one of the most important figures in recent Afghan history. According to Massoud biographer Marcella Grad, he had two dreams. The first in 1979, in which an old man tied a green cloth to his waist. The second was in 2001, in which the old man came back, opened the green cloth, and took it back. Grad explains the significance, quote, The Muslim color is green. And when somebody ties something like that on your waist, it means you are strong and everybody is behind you. And when they open the cloth and take it, it means your time is up. After the second dream, Masood gave his wife and son instructions for what they should do in the event of his death. Two months later, he would be dead. According to former CIA analyst Michael Scheuer, in 2001, the Northern Alliance controlled almost 20% of Afghanistan, mostly in the Northeast. Although they were outnumbered, Massoud had been able to get financial and military assistance from Iran, Russia, the United States, India, Uzbekistan, and a few NATO countries. Scheuer notes that this foreign assistance, quote, might enable him to extend the war indefinitely. Scheuer also points out that killing Massoud was religiously permissible because, quote, Salafi scholars in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere had long since named Massoud Islam's enemy. According to Peter Bergen, Osama bin Laden asked some of his followers, quote, who will take it upon himself to deal with Ahmed Shah Massoud for me because he harmed Allah and his sons? The plan called for two men posing as journalists to request an interview with Massoud. Once the interview was granted, they would kill him with a camera, which would be rigged with explosives. Two men volunteered. 
The two would-be journalists were actually Al-Qaeda operatives from Morocco who held Belgian passports and brought with them an old television camera and other equipment. In May of 2001, an Al-Qaeda planner used the computer in Kabul to write a letter of introduction on behalf of two Arab journalists who wanted to interview Masood. It was written in what journalist Steve Call described as, quote, patchy French on behalf of the Islamic Observation Center in London. Ahmed Shah Massoud started the morning of September 9th reading Persian poetry. He was supposed to fly to Kabul by helicopter to inspect the front lines and assess Taliban positions. One of his people reminded him of the two Arab journalists who had been waiting around for nearly two weeks to interview him. Massoud sat down on a cushion as his assassin set up their gear for the interview. His friend and ambassador to India, Massoud Khalili, sat next to him. When Massoud saw the journalists, he joked to one of his aides that they looked more like wrestlers than reporters. The reporter read a series of questions to him out loud, about half of which were about Osama bin Laden. An example, quote, We want to know why Commander Massoud said that Osama bin Laden was a murderer and should be sent away from Afghanistan. In the meantime, the cameraman continued setting up the equipment. This is what happened next, according to journalist Steve Call. Quote, the explosion ripped the cameraman's body apart. It smashed the room's windows, seared the walls in flame, and tore Masood's chest with shrapnel. He collapsed, unconscious. The reporter and other people in the room who had been sitting to the side of the blast survived. The reporter tried to run, but was captured by Masood's security guards. He was placed in a locked room, but tried to escape again by wiggling out a window. He was shot and killed during this escape attempt. Masood's people carried him outside and loaded him into a jeep and drove him to a helipad. They were near the Tajikistan border and there was a hospital 10 minute flight away, but it was too late. The Lion of Panjshir was dead. Why was his assassination so significant and what does the timing say about it? Here's terrorism expert Aaron Zellin. It was seen as sort of a present to the Taliban. Um, because he was the main leader that was fighting against the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, and therefore, uh, it suggests that Al-Qaeda did, even though maybe in the propaganda they won't admit it, that the U.S. might actually do something in response to the 9-11 attacks, and therefore they would have a harder time having a legitimate ally locally um, to then uh, fight against the Taliban. Um, and, and so that was an important part of many people view as part of the broader 9-11 operation. Um, and some people have said that it's also, it could have been a signal to actually do the attack as well, but it's harder to confirm that specifically. There is no evidence that the Massoud assassination was any sort of signal for the 9-11 hijackers to proceed with the attacks. The plot had been years in the making, and the date for it had been set by the hijackers themselves by August 29th. Former Alex Station Chief Michael Scheuer notes that the timing of the assassination was, quote, much later than bin Laden intended, and a telling object lesson for anyone foolish enough to expect things to happen on time in Afghanistan. Here's former CTC analyst Cynthia Storer. I think it's more likely that it was to get Masood out of the way, because he, he was the most effective, you know, he was fighting against them in northern Afghanistan. He was the most effective commander. And so if they assassinated him before 9-11, that left them with less to deal with. That's what I think. Bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen explained the motive behind the attacks. Quote, 
Without Massoud, what remained of the resistance to the Taliban in Afghanistan would collapse. But this was not bin Laden's primary motive for plotting to kill him. If he could get rid of Massoud, the Taliban would have reason to owe bin Laden a favor, and he was soon going to need one. Massoud's assassination would give the Taliban an important gift to compensate them for what bin Laden knew was coming, the spectacular attacks in New York and Washington that surely would pose significant problems for his Taliban hosts. In his memoir, CIA Director George Tenet wrote that Massoud's assassination might have undone the agency's plans to work with anti-Taliban groups in Afghanistan if they hadn't maintained contacts with other warlords in the north. Tenet also noted that by September 10th, 2001, the CIA had more than 100 sources and subsources and relationships with eight tribal networks across Afghanistan. They weren't good enough to capture Osama bin Laden or stop 9-11, but this network of sources would be hugely important in the aftermath of the attacks. Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who met and covered bin Laden and Massoud during the 80s in the war against the Soviets, later lamented, quote, I met Massoud in Kabul in the first week after he captured Kabul, and I fell in love with him just like everybody else. He was truly an astonishing guy. I wish that Osama met Massoud. Maybe if Osama met Massoud, it could have changed the course of history. At the time, future Afghan President Hamid Karzai was in Pakistan when he got the news of Massoud's death. His reaction was, quote, What an unlucky country. One year later, President Karzai would name Massoud a national hero. The anniversary of his death was a national holiday in post-Taliban Afghanistan. September 10th, 2001. John O'Neill spent part of his last night alive having drinks at Elaine's, a New York City bar where he was a regular patron. Jerry Howard, the city's director for emergency management from 1996 through 2000, was with him that night. Howard would later tell PBS, quote, He had said to me, we're due and we're due for something big. Some things have happened in Afghanistan I don't like, you know the way things are lining up in Afghanistan. And he said, I just, I sense a shift, and I think things are going to happen. And I said, when? He said, I don't know, but soon. And that was just his sense of things. We left about 2.30. John gave me a big bear hug and said, I'll see you tomorrow. And John went home, and that was the last I saw of him. According to Steve Call's book, Ghost Wars, the FBI had issued 216 secret threat warnings between January 1st and September 10th of that year, six of which mentioned possible attacks against airports or airlines. The FAA issued 15 notices of possible terror threats against airlines. Most people remember September 10th as the last normal day before the horrors of 9-11 changed our lives forever, but there was a last-minute warning on that final Monday of normalcy. The National Security Agency's massive electronic eavesdropping operation captured a tantalizing pair of intercepts. Two separate conversations, in Arabic, with one party in Afghanistan and the other in Saudi Arabia. The identities of the parties on both calls were not known. One conversation included the phrase, The match begins tomorrow. The other included, Tomorrow is zero hour. In both phone calls, the comments were made by the caller in Afghanistan. These intercepts were not translated until September 12th. 
This chatter was consistent with other intercepts picked up over the course of the spring and summer of 2001. Many used sports metaphors with phrases like, the score was going to be 200 to nothing, and the Olympics were coming. In the final days before the attacks, the hijackers wired the leftover funds for the plot, approximately $26,000, to Mustafa al-Hausawi in the United Arab Emirates. Following standard Al-Qaeda operating procedure, the facilitators of the plot left for Pakistan in early September to get out while they still could before the investigations and the manhunts began. Although Mohammed Atta had forbidden the other hijackers from contacting their families, presumably for reasons of operational security, he made a final phone call to his father. In Boston, several Saudis made phone calls in an effort to arrange for prostitutes to come to their hotel rooms on their last night. In the end, the prices were too high and they didn't hire anyone. According to a CIA document, Zia Jarrah mailed what is described as a farewell package to his wife back in Germany. Sitting in a Days Inn hotel in Newark, New Jersey, Jarrah wrote a final letter to his wife. The letter, which was reprinted in full in Terry McDermott's book Perfect Soldiers, concludes as follows. Our prophet said he is a poor man who has no wife and she is a poor woman who has no man. I will pick you up anyhow, and if you marry again, do not have fear. You know, I don't like all men. Think about what you are and who could deserve you. I hug you and kiss you on the hands. And I thank you, and I say sorry for the very nice, tough five years which you spent with me. Your patience has a price. God willing, I am your prince, and I will pick you up. See you again. Your man always, Zia Jarrah. The letter was dated 9-11-2001 underneath his name. Jarrah would later call her and his father for the last time on the morning of 9-11. Later in the day on September 10th, Mohammed Atta and Abdulaziz Alamari drove a rented Nissan from Boston to Portland, Maine. None of the post-9-11 investigations have been able to figure out why they went there instead of flying out of Boston with the other hijackers on Tuesday morning. That evening, they went shopping at a Walmart and ate at Pizza Hut. They spent their last night alive in a Comfort Inn hotel. Less than 24 hours before the attacks, all of the pieces were in position on the chessboard. The match was about to begin. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at the horrors and heroism of September 11th through multiple perspectives as events unfolded. The airplanes, the control towers, the buildings, Air Force One, and the White House. I'm David Gisola. Thank you for listening.